You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 11th, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So it's official. The World Health Organization, who... That's right, the yes. World Health Organization, has <laughs> declared a worldwide pandemic. Welcome okay. to the pandemic, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, we were, yeah, just a, I mean, just we a were label at this point. We were there. It's just a But label. still, it's a milestone. That's only it is. It is. the third time. <laughs> You're acting like it's like a, a certificate you would put on your kid's wall. Yeah, well, I, just I, already, saying, you know, I already got my I Survived the Pandemic t-shirt of t- <laughs> 2020. It's historic. It's, it doesn't have, this is like only the third time, right? Well, well, oh, is that you got the Spanish mm-hmm. flu? Yeah, in the in the, the late te- nineteen. What, Did eight, we have the World Health Organization? Yeah, I think that think that twenty eleven and this. That's it. Oh, was bird it, bird was it Mer- MERS right. in twenty eleven? No, that wasn't big enough. Current pandemics are HIV, AIDS, and coronavirus. Recent pandemics include nineteen eighteen influenza and the two thousand nine flu Nine. pandemic. You're right, Steve. H one H one N one. Is bird flu right, or was that swine flu? Swine flu, not swine flu. flu. Oh, it was a swine, swine flu. flu. Swine flu. And then um, HIV AIDS, though, is a current global pandemic. It's It's mm-hmm. been categorized. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. We're way off. Which makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So, and, you know, 1,000 cases. We passed 1,000 cases in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Italy is, you know, they're in the middle, I think, of their epidemic. China is on the other side of theirs. Right. We're just gearing up. So now we're in the phase of social distancing is kind of mm-hmm. the word of the day you mm-hmm. know, for the U.S. So, you know, events are being canceled left and right. No non-essential travel. People are starting to talk about taking their kids out of schools now. Well, well the, a lot of the schools are talking are about closing to, down. Yeah, close. So uh, our high school, they're basically gearing up. They, they're sending emails out saying that, okay, we may have to shut down. We haven't decided yet, but this is what we're going to do if we do. And they're sort of laying out the plan. It's reasonable. So, it seems inevitable. A lot of colleges are saying we're doing all online classes for the rest of the semester. I'm lucky that I go to a school that's mostly online anyway. So I feel like my professors are really prepared. They know what to do. They've been really up to date with everything, getting the emails out about plans for in-person meetings. But I feel bad for a lot of the professors who have never taught online before because it's a totally different skill set. Mm-hmm. And you have to know what to do. And it's like, software, yeah. Yeah, and they're just going to be thrown into it. And also the students who have never done online classes, like it requires a different amount of kind of like self-efficacy. I don't know what the right Are we going to have older for. professors taking pieces of chalk and trying to write on their monitors, <laughs> hoping <laughs> everyone can see it? <laughs> so it looks That's like so as of today, is today the 11th? Yes. Yeah. 118,326 confirmed cases globally and 4,292 deaths. That's mm-hmm. pandemic. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll be talking about a couple of uh, coronavirus-related news items a bit later in the show. Mm. But yeah, this is, you know, it's we've been talking about it, you know, obviously for months, giving the updates, and now we're just hitting, I think, we could see the peak coming now, you know, in mm-hmm. the U.S. at least. And a lot of experts are saying now, basically, everyone's going to get exposed. You know, it's really just a matter of how quickly is it going to happen. Right. You're and right. the key is 
we want to slow it down as much as possible so it doesn't overwhelm our resources. That's so it's not that we're going to really. keep it. We're not going to keep it from spreading. We're just going to slow the spread because that's a huge difference. There was some jackass on TV saying, just, to, just expose everybody now and no, get it no, over no, with. No, no, no. Yeah, that's what? the opposite wow. of what we want to do. Because then yeah, the, the, the mortality spikes when you run out of things like ventilators and ICU <laughs> yeah. beds. Well, and you it's know, so, not, I mean, it's not going to be literally everybody. It's going to spread through the population, but that doesn't mean everybody's going to be exposed, right? There's, well, I think that everyone's not going to necessarily contract it. The infectivity is not 100%. No. But unless you're like seriously isolated, you're probably going to get exposed. Yeah, but I mean, there are whole countries where there's only like three cases. Yeah, it'll get there eventually. Yeah. That's the point. That's what they're saying. Yeah. It's gonna, It's just the, we, the human population has no immunity, right? So it's a naive population, and it's going to make the rounds. It's going to eventually just make the rounds all over the world, and then it'll slow down mainly because people will have either well, – most people will have already been infected. There won't be enough new you know, naive hosts to keep it going. And do we know that you can't be reinfected? Well, you'll have some level of immunity. Yeah, it may not okay. necessarily be 100%, but you're no longer a naive host. You have an immune yeah. system that's seen that, seen this virus before. The other thing is we want to slow it down and maybe you have know, a vaccine. In, in 12 to 18 months, yeah. we might have a vaccine. That'd be nice. And that would really further slow it down. And also maybe it'll be a seasonal situation and it actually will yeah. naturally slow down over the summer and give people some relief up until you know the new season starts, if it operates seasonally. Yeah. So, and you know, the other thing that everyone is saying, which is correct, is don't panic, but use your common sense, you know, mm -hmm. just to avoid unnecessary contact with lots of people, basically. But also and don't wash buy your hands every and, face mask yeah. in the store. Yeah. Yeah. And leave some Clorox wipes for the rest of us, please. Yeah. <laughs> punks. And toilet paper. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Ah, uh, the toilet paper discussion. Them shelves be empty. And also, don't be getting into fist fights over toilet paper at Costco. It's embarrassing. Yeah, we don't need a uh, Thanksgiving, <laughs> you know, Black Friday incident. Oh, there have been tons yeah, all mean, over yeah. the world. It's so <laughs> embarrassing. Okay, Kara, you're going to give us a what's the word. Yeah, so this word was sent in by Linda from Petaluma, California. She said... I teach chemistry in high school, and this term came up recently, so I figured I'd share with you and the whole crew. It's one I've always loved for the simple fact that I find it fun to say out loud. Always a good one to bring up in casual conversation. And the word that she recommended is moiety. And moiety! Moiety! He died of moiety. Many, many of you have uh, asked that we spell the words each week, and this is an especially, I think, necessary one to spell. M-O-I-E-T-Y. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's a good one, right? Yeah. And so moiety, I'm going to start a little bit with the etymology because then I think it makes more sense when you look at all the different usages because it's true. I had only ever heard of this word in a chemistry context, but it apparently also has a um, sociology context. And Does it start in Brooklyn? No. <laughs> it started in <laughs> Okay. France. It sounds like kind of weird. Oh, it's I see. It's French. Um, and it also has a, like a property uh, definition. So the etymology of the word, yeah, it's 
from the Latin originally, but the first time that it started to look like moiety is in Old French around the 15th century. In that usage, it meant an equal half, a half part, or a share, which is basically still its definition. It's just become a little bit more specific over time. So if you look in like a dictionary definition, you're going to find that it means, let's see, Merriam-Webster, which is kind of the American standard, will say one of two equal parts, a half, or one or two approximately equal parts, or one of the portions into which something is divided, or one of two basic complementary tribal subdivisions. And if you look at um, Cambridge, Cambridge Dictionary, you'll see something similar. Um, but there they've a part or a share of something, especially when it's divided into two parts. But there they've added the chemistry definition, but they just wrote a part of a molecule, which is honestly not very specific. So if you really start to dig deep into the term, you'll see that again, um, there are basically three main utilizations. There's the chemistry utilization, the utilization in kinship, and then a moiety title, which is a legal term that describes a portion of title ownership. So if it's like a divided title which is kind of interesting. Makes sense. In kinship, you'll see it referring oftentimes to tribal groups, usually Native American or um, specifically Iroquois or Australian Aboriginal kinship groups. And also I think there's a Native Hawaiian kinship group. And with that respect, um, moiety is like when there's a group that descends from a larger group and only hangs out with one other group. So there's like kinship that's divided into this group and that group, and they may intermix and they may spend time together, but they tend to maintain specific descent. But in chemistry, which is probably the the term that you're most likely, if you're like a, a nerd like me listening to the show and you like, you like your science, your STEM, um, you've probably heard it mostly in chemistry, um, organic chemistry to be more specific. And in that respect, moiety is its just a part of a molecule. Now, it's not to be confused with the smaller, smaller parts like functional groups, which are usually specified to like individual atoms or, you know, a few atoms put together that have specific um, functions. A moiety is a larger subdivision. And what makes it a moiety is that it on its own can also be found in other kinds of molecules. So it would be like a section of a molecule that um, branches usually, let's say, off of the backbone of the molecule. And then it itself might contain functional groups. It might even contain smaller moieties, but it's a, a piece or a part of a molecule that you would also see in other molecules. And you might specifically hear the term active moiety. That's usually referring to drugs, to pharmacology, and there it's talking about the part of the molecule that is active, the part that actually binds and has a, an, an effect. So it might be like a chelator, it might be a complex, um, usually it's going to be like a ester or a salt, it's going to be something that can bind to a receptor and then have a downstream effect. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm -hmm. Sure. Moiety? Moiety. Moiety, Yeah. It is kind of an esoteric word, you know what it's, I mean? It's like you, it's, yeah, totally. it's not like an. It's a little bit of a subtle concept. Oh, for sure, because it's not really equal. Like when you look up the dictionary definition, that's kind of like not what it means. Yeah, it's just it's, that it's generally really. speaking, it's a part. And if you were going to use it, maybe more poetically or more like in casual conversation, I guess you could probably 
use it to refer to an equal one of equal parts or a part of a whole or something that like it kind of can stand on its own if you were to subdivide it. But um, to be more specific in chemistry or in, like I said, kind of um, anthropology, I said sociology before, but I meant anthropology. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a really specific term. So would you say, for example, that the Novella brothers are a moiety of ESGU? Yeah, I think you could say that. Yeah, because Evan and I are not Novelli. Yeah. Nope. And you guys, yeah, you guys are a part that is like its own thing. Thing. Yeah, yeah, but then you're included in a larger thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. I like that. All right. Thank you, Kara. Yep. All right, guys, I'm going to start off the news section with this really cool item. And what is, I think, amazing about this is how many different sciences are woven together in this story. So check this out. So we all know that the the length of the day was shorter in the past, right? Oh, yeah. And we've talked about this before on the show that the moon, when it was created, was a lot closer to the Earth. And then because of the tidal interaction between the Earth and the moon, the moon is getting pushed away. The moon's rotation on its axis slowed down until one side of the moon forever faces the Earth. And the rotation of the Earth continues to slow down until eventually one side of the Earth will be locked with the moon. Right, so and that's we, called, so that's tidal. That's, so the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, and we are, yes. we are slowing down in a process called tidal breaking, which is a fascinating process. Yeah. So the the way the tidal breaking works is, so you know how like there's a, the oceans bulge a little bit underneath the moon, to a lesser extent the sun as well, but the sun's a lot farther away, and so but that that bulge is not exactly beneath the moon. It's Earth, a little it's rotating. It's a little in front of it because the Earth is rotating, mm. and mm-hmm. and that that little bulge, which is a little bit in front of the Moon, is having a tiny little gravitational tug on the Moon, and what that's doing is breaking the Earth, right? It's slowing down the Earth, and that momentum is getting transferred to the Moon. Oh, funny! So it's breaking oh, it the Earth, like B R A K I. Not yes. B-R-E-A-K-I. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. B-R-A-K. It's slowing down <laughs> like, the earth, the but there's the conservation of angular momentum. And so it's just really the earth is accelerating the moon while it's slowing down. But the yeah. moon's acceleration is really just an increase in its angular momentum due to the increased distance between the earth and the moon. And ironically, the moon is actually slowing down in velocity because in higher orbits, you go slower, right? So the moon's getting farther away and going slower, but its net angular momentum is increasing in the exact proportion that the Earth's angular momentum is decreasing as it slows down. Yeah, it's kind of like stealing the energy from the Earth. Yes, exactly. And that will happen until the Earth and the moon are both tidally locked with each other. And that is 50 billion years in the future. So the sun will be long dead. (laughs) uh, (laughs) And if the Earth-Moon system even still exists, they will be tidally locked. Yeah, but it won't. But we talk about a lot of like exoplanets. Like we know when exoplanets are super close to their star that they're probably tidally locked, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why so one face will always be facing their parent star. Okay, so what this means is that the moon was closer to the Earth in the past, which means it was bigger in the sky. Approximately bigger. Not only bigger, it was approximately at its biggest, I think, about 15 times bigger than it appears today. Can you imagine a moon 15 times bigger? It's so cool. But the Earth has been slowing down, which means the day is getting longer and longer and longer. 
But here's the thing. If we model, if we, in, if we like computer model, mathematically model the Earth-Moon system, then uh, like for, we, we, we can actually measure that with, a, you know, we're bouncing lasers off of the corner reflectors that Apollo left on the moon. The moon is getting further away from the Earth by about 3.82 centimeters per yeah. year. Come back, right? moon. 3.82 <laughs> centimeters. And if we extrapolate back in time, that means about one and a half billion years ago, the moon would have been at the surface of the Earth. So that rate cannot be constant. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can't, we haven't been able to precisely model theoretically exactly how that interaction has evolved over the last four and a half billion years because, you know, the moon's about four and a half billion years old. So it must have been moving away more slowly in the past. What is the moon made out of? Is it made out of Earth? So that's a good question. Uh, It's made out of a combination of Earth and Mm -hmm. whatever the the body was that smacked into Earth four and a half billion years ago. So whatever Um, made Earth also made moon. So what if so you had so you had the Earth 1.0, then mm-hmm. something about the size of Mars smacked into it, mm. and then formed Earth 2.0 and the Moon and the Moon. Okay, so it is yeah. similar. Okay, okay, so it was actually close to Earth, very close, as you were saying at some point, but it wasn't like on the surface of Earth. no, no, right. No, it was yeah. very close. Okay. Well, first there was debris after after that huge collision. There, of course, there was a lot of debris, which then coalesced into yeah. either the moon or some scientists think that it coalesced into two separate moons that, that that persisted for perhaps a century, but then they coalesced into the one gotcha. one big moon, and uh, you yeah. know, and then the, the the fun started. So at any <laughs> given point, or at the beginning. Not the beginning, but the beginning of the Earth and the Moon. They were already some distance apart from each other, and then now we know what distance they are. And so you're saying well, that that, that like, change hasn't been consistent. And we could measure exactly how much farther the Moon is getting every year, but exactly. those numbers don't add up. Gotcha. So we, if only we had a way of measuring the length of the day in the past, we could plug that into our models. Mm. And well, tweak we've them. had. Hence comes your new story. We well, had, we've had that information. We've had that information in the past. Maybe it wasn't um, accurate enough as as what we. Because uh, I'm not sure exactly what you're going to say, Steve. Um, but we have mm-hmm. had that information. We have evidence based on fossils, and uh, that that the day was like ten hours like 10 hours long, many, many, many millions and millions of years ago. But maybe that, that, that information is not as solid as we needed to plug into the model. Yeah, so that's exactly correct. We, we had, we've had prior estimates, mm-hmm. but now here's the new bit. So what does all this have to do with mollusks, right? You might be asking yourself. <laughs> I was asking Moon myself. Mollusks. Yeah. mollusks are going to tell us about the length of the day 70 million yeah. years ago. So we but do have some previous previous estimates based upon coral, okay. but this is now an estimate based upon a specific mollusk, Teredus sanchezi, which is a rudest bivalve. So if you can imagine a bear claw, you know, like a bear claw uh, pastry, yeah, but then extend it so it's cylindrical, sort of, you know, so it's like the size of a pint glass, but it's bear claw shape, shaped in cross section. That's a a bivalve mollusk, a rudest bivalve. So these died out with the non-avian dinosaurs 65 million years ago. But uh, So we have a fossil sample of one from 70 million years ago. Now, the researchers were able to use a number of techniques. Uh, they said they um, did layer counting, spectral analysis of chemical cyclicity, and chemical layer counting. 
So here's the thing. The mollusk is, is growing its shell out of calcium carbonate, and it lays down a layer of shell every day. And it also varies in the thickness of these, this layer making seasonally. So we could literally see the length of a day and, you know, we could see like we can count the days in a year because wow. we could see each day. In days, fact, they right. said that with these techniques, they were able to get five data points per day. Wow. So they were able to break That's it pretty, down. That's pretty dang. granular. That's sharp. And so they could actually – so here's the cool thing. Imagine this. So, so first of all, they figured out that it was growing a lot faster during the day than at night. And so mm. there seems to be a real light-based daily cycle to it, which, which the, the scientists say suggests that they had a photosynthetic symbiont living in their shells. That's amazing. And that's the first time you have evidence for that in these fossil species. But that also means that like we could say this day right here 70 million years ago, it was cloudy. That was that a cloudy day. So no. Because it wasn't as much light. That's you know? crazy. And, there is a, and the light changes seasonally as well, which is why we could say that this is one year because here are all the seasons. And so if you count up all the days you, you, you know, and you know how many the year didn't doesn't change, right? The, the earth goes around the sun in exactly the same amount of time now as it did 70 million years ago. So they said there was 372 days in a year, 70 million years ago, which means that each day go. was 23.5 hours long. And so we have the most precise measurement of the length of a day using this combination of techniques wow. with this type of fossil that has this exquisite layering, daily and seasonal layering of its shell formation. Whoa. Totally cool. So we know within multiple measurements of a single day about something yeah. that was 70 million years old, although don't most radioisotope dating techniques not even tell us that it's exactly 70 million years old? Like that's like plus or minus like a million years or so? No, but you, 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 this, because again of the way it incorporates material, mm -hmm. uh, you can, you can radio date it very, very precisely. Like very closely. But okay. not only that, because, you know, some fossils are also dated by their beds. Like, mm -hmm. if you, you can, you can have an index species, right? An index species is something where it evolved over time and, and, you know, we have multiple opportunities of dating individual specimens. With and, and we know how they are in the strata. And, and then we know that, you know, that, and we have a sequence, an evolutionary mm. sequence with subtle changes all the way through. And so we could say if this was in a layer with this index species, we know exactly when it was. Gotcha. So within, cool. very, within a very, very narrow date range. So anyway, so what they want to do is apply the same technique to specimens of different age points and then get multiple data points for the length of the day, you know, going back millions of years uh, and then we can we can compare that to the astronomers models about the earth moon system and how the moon has been moving away from the earth cool right yeah so awesome. this how many mm -hmm. i mean just count the number of different scientific disciplines and lines of evidence that are all coming together in this one paper it's amazing i love it and it's just one of those examples of like when we discuss there's so many cool things in science right that yeah. like we almost take it for granted but every so yeah. often you hear about a paper or study like this where you're like how are we that good yeah you know <laughs> like that's amazing right think it, uh, you have you know this uh, is because we have precise measurements of the speed of light. We have corner reflectors on the moon. We know how far fast the moon is moving away. 
We know about the geology, you know, tidal forces. Uh, we know about, and then all the, you know, car, but not carbon dating, and then radionuclei dating and other, uh, you know, fossil index species, plus the the way to analyze, the multiple techniques they use to analyze the calcium carbonate layers in this mollusk shell. And it sort of all comes together in, in this lovely way. Incredible. Yeah, that's what E.O. Wilson called consilience yeah, in science. Consilience, which I think yeah. it's yeah, it's it's a great, great, great example of how powerful that is. And it's also one of the things that really separates science apart from pretty much everything else Damn that humans right. do. Because we're describing one reality and it all has to work together. And that's also why, like when pseudoscientists make some claim that doesn't fit into the this scientific puzzle that we're right. arranging it's it it matters you know we're not being closed-minded when we say well that doesn't fit in with everything else that we know it it, it just means that you you want to pull this whole puzzle apart so that you can fit your one piece in mm-hmm. and you have to weigh that against all of the work and evidence that went into assembling the pieces that we've already put into place um, if it doesn't all work and fit together, something's wrong somewhere. Right? Yeah, I love that. That's a great metaphor because you have all these interlocking pieces, and they all, you know, they all work together and they support each other in that. Yeah. they fit because they they're they're consistent and they're consilient or whatever mm-hmm. how you want to refer to it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody throws you a puzzle piece that has the bizarre shape that doesn't fit anywhere, and you're like, "Sorry, this is not part of the puzzle we call reality. This is just something that's come out of your head." And yeah. put it back there and stop bugging me. <laughs> or at the very minimum, like you have a massive burden of proof. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, because you Huge. are going to require that the 17 pieces around it all change slightly in order for your thing to be true, which is much less likely. I mean, the best example of that from our personal experience was Neil Adams, right? Who, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. The, the Hollow Earth hollow guy. Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who basically, that's what he did. He had this one puzzle piece, the Earth is hollow. And, and it's expanding over historical time. And it does not fit with the rest of science. <laughs> Flatter so, as well. So what did he do? He deconstructed the rest of science. He said it's all that's, wrong. Everything, yeah, physics is wrong. Yeah. Astronomy is wrong. It's all mm-hmm. wrong. In order to make this one puzzle piece fit, I have to tear away everything else. And they, that's why it's pseudoscience. It's nonsense. And assault on real science on, yeah. on top of that. Yeah. Just the flat earth is the same, by the way. If you believe in mm-hmm. a flat earth, you have to deconstruct all of science in order I to make take that it all, work. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And, and mm-hmm. creation, creationism the same. Yeah. Yeah. Creationism. Yeah. So yeah. many, yeah, so many sure. examples. So many examples. Yep. All right. Cool. Love that item. Yeah. Um, okay. As promised, we're going to do a couple of coronavirus-related items. Bob, you're going to start off by telling us that we should wash our hands. Uh-oh. <laughs> right. Wait, let me yeah. Wash, yeah. Wash, so, wash with what, Bob? Toilet paper and rubbing <laughs> <Sorry>. alcohol? <laughs> uh, no, just put your hands under a very hot flame. Uh, that, oh, that only works for robots. <laughs> well, yeah, over, over <laughs> hot. Over hot. Yes, I've been a little obsessed with cleaning my hands of late, like literally millions of other people all over the planet. Um, so what is the best way to clean your hands? Uh, yeah. There's soap and water. There's hand sanitizer. There's the spit and rub method. You know, what's the most effective way 
to do it. The what? Um, spit and rub. You ever heard of spit and rub? <laughs> spit on your hands, rub Ew. them together. Yeah, come yeah. on. Hey, it's a you know, it's an option. It's an option. I'm not saying it's good, but it's an option. It's all that. It's all natural. Dirty, Kara. Right? It's so, all natural. so what does science? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally made that up, by the way. Spit and rub. So what does science <laughs> and science people say is best? And the best, and not only the best, but what's the best way to do? To, to actually use one of those methods. So, uh, and this isn't just pedantic musings. Of course, this information can literally save lives. So seriously, I mean, people, uh, people can live or die based on, you know, how well they, they do this. So let's, I'm going to throw out some nomenclature, though, because uh, names are changing a lot. You know, first it was, there's people say coronavirus uh, or novel coronavirus, and those, both of those names stink. Uh, they're not good. They were, they were just provisionary anyway. They're just too generic. Uh, nowadays, they're saying that the disease is called COVID-19, which stands for the Coronavirus Disease 2019, uh, 2019. So that's a disease. And the virus itself has a different name, which is, which is common. So uh, the virus there being, is being called SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-2. That stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome-Related Coronavirus 2. Uh, kind of a mouthful. Um, even the the shortened version is a little bit, and uh, that's just showing that this is this virus uh, has related. Uh, they they found a definite relation to the SARS uh, uh, epidemic virus, uh, which of course is SARS CoV. Nothing. That's it. SARS SARS dash COV because that was the first one. So it's clearly related to that. But uh, a lot of people aren't happy with it. They don't like the uh, the relationship, uh, the explicit relationship to stars because it has a lot of baggage. <laughs> he um, said stars. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's got a lot of baggage. People, a lot of people don't don't like that SARS is in the name of the virus, um, but it, it can become uh, widely adopted fairly soon. So that might be the name that we're stuck with. But the WHO, the WHO specifically doesn't like it, and they're they're calling it uh, they're calling the virus the COVID nineteen virus. Um, mm. So which is so I don't know I don't know who knows you can't predict what's going to stick. Well, it'll probably be confusing if we ever have like a SARS outbreak at the same time as a COVID nineteen outbreak. Like then it might get difficult to keep yeah. those things straight. Yeah. How do you protect yourself? I mean, there's you know there's some things you could do that you clearly have you know your fate in your are in your own hands, so to speak. I mean, there's lots of things you could do unrelated to washing your hands, like go don't go, you know going into big crowds and things like that. Also, the biggest thing. I think is just to not touch your face. If if you could not touch your face, you would everybody would be so much better off. But I ca- I really cannot wear my Mandalorian mask twenty four seven. Not touching your face is not really even feasible because people mm. do it like something like sixty to ninety times a day, and you don't even think about it. You don't. It just you don't think about it, and that's so hard to stop. So the, and the, Bob, the, yeah. Bob. I was watching people. I was at the DMV today. Great place to go to get coronavirus. Um, <laughs> and I was watching people in line because some people had masks on their faces like they do. Yeah. And the people who had masks on their faces were touching their faces so yep. much more because yep. they were like adjusting their mask every 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so the next best thing is, is to wash your hands often and, this all all the time, you know, many times during the day. So the best way to do that, let's talk about soap and water. That's, this turns out to be an amazingly effective way of reducing the risk uh, to you and to people that you might infect with whatever pathogens are, are on your hand that you would then leave everywhere. So this is because water, soap and water do two things. They kill as well as they remove 
the stuff on, on your hands. They, they do those two things very well. So soap and water rinses away the pathogens and most of the nasty stuff on the skin that could be there. It's physically removed. It's gone. It's not there anymore. It's down the drain. And that's because of the wonderful soap molecule. It's, you know, it's hydrophilic on one end and hydrophobic on the other. It basically grabs dirt and, on one end and water on the other, and it just f- flushes it all away off, off of your hands. It's beautiful stuff. Um, so that's so that's it's amphipathic. One, it's that's the yes, and that's the one of the best things about soap and water right there. Soap can also, and this is isn't what widely known. I don't think soap can break apart the lipid layer around viruses, uh, including the COVID nineteen virus, and because uh, it, it has this fat layer uh, enveloping it, and soap just breaks it apart. It, done. It just breaks it apart. Cannot infect a host anymore. So those two attributes of soap and water are wonderful and make them the king of washing your hands. So so. Once you know that, then you need to know how, how do I actually wash my hands most efficiently. And evidence shows that lather, you've got to lather up for at least 20 seconds. And uh, the best way to do that, I've, I've been doing it. I started today. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to yourself two times. And that's you know, roughly 20 oh, seconds. Twice. But just do a, minimum, do a minimum of 20 seconds. You know, If you're going into surgery, you might want to do more. If you're just doing something silly at home, <laughs> yeah, you don't necessarily need to do it that long. But it's a good, it's a good number. Just do it for at least 20 seconds. And of course, you've got to get everywhere the palm, the back of your hand, in between the fingers and under your nails. Got to get all that. And rubbing itself, lathering is important. Um, one reason why it is is because that the rubbing you do to create the lather is is, is ca- causing friction and that'll, that act alone can remove dirt and grime and, and, and microbes. And people, when they have soap as opposed to just water, if they have soap in their hands and they're trying to build a lather, they just naturally rub their hands together much more intensely. And another thing, and then when you're ready to rinse, Rinse it under running water. Do not put your hands in like a standing water. Sounds kind of obvious, right? But you got to want to use running water because Ugh. standing water. If there's standing water there and you just you know put your hands in it like you're doing dishes or whatever, you obviously you could recontaminate. So don't don't do that. Just rinse them under under Wait, running water. Bob, are yeah. you saying that that people? fill the sink and, and rinse their hands that way? I don't know. I guess. I guess. Well, I mean, that's what there, I, I've there read. There are places where people don't have. There are places where people don't have running water. Yeah, that's true. And so they might put water into a basin. Yeah, basin. And sure. wash things, like wash clothes. So they might want to wash their hands with that. Right. But my assumption, Bob, is that that's still better than not washing your hands, right? I mean, that's the difficult thing. What happens if you don't have running right. water? Yeah. That, yeah, I'm talking the, the ideal best way to, to do mm-hmm. this. And yeah, if you don't have running water, then yeah, do what you got to yeah. do. Definitely do what gotcha. you got to do. And follow the other rules as, uh, as even more closely if you can. Then the last part of this is to dry thoroughly. And that's really even more important than I thought. Um, wet uh, hands. If your hands are wet, you can pick up uh, pathogens more easily and you could deposit them more easily. So you've got to really dry your hands. Uh, don't just like wet your hands and then wipe them on your pants or whatever. Make sure your hands are really dry. Shit, I do that all the time. What's better, paper towels or or because I'm talking about oh, public bathrooms. Yep, paper right. towels or the blower thingies? We, we talked about, we talked this about it on the show. The bottom it's line, unclear. I think, is that, yeah, it's not clear. Both do, do one or the other. And it's just not clear which one's better. I kind of prefer the paper towels mainly because I think the extra friction that you're getting from the paper, rubbing it all over your hands to dry them, can can do that that last kind of last line of uh, of offense where you're re- removing anything that might be possibly left on your and hands. And they're also dry. And, and right. you can use that paper towel to grab the handle of the door to of open door. it. True. And you can't do that if you 
that's, with that's the blow dryer hands. But do what, every time there. I use one of those damn blow dryers, I have to wipe my hands on my jeans after because they're not dry all the way. You're right. You're right. Unless you use one of those, uh, what's it, the Dyson ones? The Dyson they, ones. They're yeah. really good. They they will dry yeah. your hands fully, and that that's great. Yeah, but the paper towels are still better. Yeah. The question I, <laughs> in terms of sanitation, the paper towels are better. In terms of cost, like environmental cost, mm-hmm. etc., it's right. not clear. That's what's not clear. Oh, really? But, okay. Yeah, that it makes made sense. it made sense because paper towels definitely did, seemed a little bit superior in that you got that extra friction and and there's the environmental yeah. uh, cost. And they're, like more, they're more yeah. they're more thorough. Yeah. So that leads us to hand sanitizer wars. Uh, they are crazy <laughs> popular, right? I mean, everywhere mm-hmm. I go, they are gone. I was on Amazon for a half hour today looking for something, anything, any hand sanitizer. Not any of them because some are better than others. Uh, I, I, unbelievable how how. How gone that stuff is now! I wish, I wish two months ago I would have just bought out whole companies and and sold them on the streets and made a tidy profit. No, I wouldn't. That'd would be that'd be nasty. Um, so <laughs> what? So what? Hand sanitizers. What the hell is it? It's it's isopropyl alcohol plus some gel, and that's all you really need. But you could also throw some nice smelling oils if you want to smell nice. But it's really all about the alcohol. That's it's the power of alcohol. That's the active ingredient. The alcohol just myrtleizes many of the bacteria and viruses. Did by, you say by myrtleizes? Yeah, by, yeah. <laughs> myrtleizes. I wanted to use that word. So it Moitalized. destroys it destroys their outermost layer, and it makes sure that they can no longer take take over any host. It just takes them out. But you need you need at least sixty percent uh, alcohol content. Uh, do not buy them less than less than that. Um, sixty to 95 percent are, are are great. Um, and this technique. Um, hand sanitizers like this work on MRSA, influenza, E. coli, hepatitis B and C, plus COVID nineteen. It just wipes it out. So if you want to, if you want to knock out uh, COVID nineteen on your hands, then sanitizers will do the job. Uh, do not use uh, like vodka. Uh, as the alcohol, because it's it's not potent enough. It's basically bottom line, not potent enough. And what it will do is basically reduce the growth of germs rather than kill them outright. And you do, you want to kill them outright. So don't you know? Don't make any gel with like vodka. You know, just drink that shit. Don't just put it on your hands. <laughs> and also the amount the amount of hand sanitizer is very important. If you look at the instructions, they will often say rub a dime sized drop onto your hands. Not enough. Not enough. Most people don't mm. even do that. They just do a couple little drops and they do some token rubbing. And they think they're done. No, you need to. You need to do a lot more than that. Uh, the World Jeez. Health Organizations recommend a palmful of sanitizer, uh, which Whoa. is a little ambiguous. But other sources, yeah. T- what does that other, mean? Other sources, you take a palm me, from a tree and you yeah. fill it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Other sources say a half a teaspoon or three milliliters of sanitizer. So uh, yeah, so kind of use that, but just do a little more than you you, you think. So yeah, so that's that's basically it. Uh, the bottom line then is soap and water uh, is the best. Soap and water hand washing is the best. Do it properly. You know, people have been saying this is fairly common. You know, wash your hands with soap and water as often as you can. When you're not near soap and water, then use the uh, use the hand sanitizer and, and you'll be fine. So the problem, the reason why but any soap. No, not any soap. Uh, the uh, recent evidence suggests that you do not need to use anti anti. Uh, microbial soap. This is for general consumers, not healthcare workers. But for general consumers, do, you do not need to buy soap that has antimicrobial uh, uh, agents in it because it's, it, doesn't do it doesn't help. It doesn't help. It doesn't do. And they, okay. they they actually pass some laws 
uh, to remove uh, some of them. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're not needed. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, sanitizers are good, but they're second class. They don't remove anything. It's kind of still on your hand. Um, if your hands are visibly dirty or greasy, the uh, sanitizer gel will not will not get rid of that. And it doesn't remove or might not remove harmful chemicals like pesticides and heavy metals and even spores. They will just stay right on your hand. Sanitizers don't work on viruses with a hard shell like norovirus, which is which is the uh, f- like food poisoning, Steve, Ugh. I think. Uh, polio virus and more. Norovirus is nasty and, and sanitizers will not help much with that at all. And even if a sanitizer uh, can kill a specific pathogen that's on your hand, it's less likely to do so if it's if it's wrapped up in whatever dirt or grime or in mucus. If it's wrapped in mucus, then sanitizers will be less effective, uh, and soap and water will be much more effective. And and don't forget the last thing about sanitizers. And I love sanitizers; I use them all day. But uh, don't forget, please do not forget that sanitizers have a lot of alcohol in them, right? So they can cause alcohol poisoning if a, if a person consumes more than a couple mouthfuls. And uh, mm. I read, I found it's a, also flammable. I found a statistic. Sure, I found a statistic. Uh, 2011 to 2015, U.S. Poison Control Centers received nearly 85,000 calls about hand sanit- hand sanitizer exposures among children because some of them Aww. taste sweet. 85,000. So definitely uh, use your hand sanitizers. And when you don't have access to water, but keep them away from children. I have two questions. Yeah. My hand san- I'm looking at hand sanitizer right now. Mine has an expiration date. Uh, what, should I, do I need to abide by that? Or do you think probably. that's just like a suggested end well, by I date? Think, I think it's probably, uh, well, it's probably alcohol still effective. Does, I think it's probably alcohol st- evaporates, guys. Like you can't leave a bottle of isopropyl with the lid off. Yeah, if the lid's off, it's a different story. If it's a brand, if you find a brand new one, I would suspect it might be li- li- a little bit less effective. But it's, if it's all you got... And these days, it might be all you have. Then, it, then it's probably better yeah. than nothing. But hey, stick to, you know, stick to soap and water, and use that. I mean, sure, take that with you and use it if you need. If you don't, you don't have access to water and you're out and about. So, one final thing, guys. So, hand washing is obviously critical uh, right now, and the the most stark reason why was demonstrated recently uh, in last December, even before coronavirus really came out. Um, the MRT research showed that increasing hand washing at just ten airports in the U.S would reduce the spread of coronavirus by 60%. 60%. And that's just 10 airports. So that shows you right there how, you know, how how much of an impact just hand washing could have. I I yeah, mean, but Bob, I, those are just to, just to be clear. Those are strategically of course, determined. Of course, of that's course. not ten random airports. That's no. like if you know this is where the this is where the outbreak is, and you pick these ten airports because that's where the most travel is going to be. Then yes, you can you can never suggest. Well, sure, that seems that seems that seems kind of obvious and implied in, in there to me anyway. But it, yeah, but, well, I just but, it, to be clear. but yeah, but it just shows that just ten. It doesn't matter if those are well picked. It just shows that just ten can do that. Imagine if more than ten. What if twenty or thirty, fifty airports across the country? I mean, why not enforce this? Why not say you come off a plane? Well, there's a station. Wash your hands right now before you yeah, even why mingle in it. Why? Why not? I'm going to have we, one in my house right now. I've got a sink in it, my house. You almost, walk in my house, 10 feet away, there's a, one, our secondary <laughs> sink. I'm going to set up paper towels. I'm going to set up soap. And anybody who comes in my house is going to – first thing they do is they wash their hands. First thing. That's it. I've seen people wearing latex gloves. Uh, is that recommended? Oh, yeah. The DMV, a lot of the ladies No, it gives you a false gloves. sense of confidence really. I mean because mm. you, you'll find that you'll probably touch a lot of stuff. Much more stuff than you would normally would have touched, and then uh, mm. then when you take the gloves off, you got you got to wash your hands anyway. Um, it's real. It's really 
it's not recommended from what Gotcha. Yeah, well, let's, just, to, just to, again, to further nuance there. So wearing rubber gloves will protect other people from you. Uh, they don't protect you very much right. if you also are touching your face with the gloves. You know what I mean? You're that just, makes sense. Yeah. And right. they um, do not replace hand washing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. right? So you still still have to wash your hands, and but they, and they could play a role. Gloves. They could play a role, but just don't get a false sense of security from it. Yeah. All right, Evan. So we talk, we, to Bob is talking about. The things that will work to protect you and others. <laughs> yeah. I see where this is going. <laughs> you know, you're going to talk about some other stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe some alternatives to things that actually work. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I saw several different articles this week about traditional Chinese medicine and the COVID-19 outbreak. All right. Let me give you a couple of headlines so you get a sense of where I'm coming from. MedicineNet.com, their headline, Can Traditional Chinese Medicine and Herbs Help? They asked the question. New York Post ran a headline, Demand for Chinese Herbs and Acupuncture Spikes Amid the Coronavirus Outbreak. Reuters had a headline, U.S. Coronavirus Threat Fuels Demand for Traditional Herbal Remedies. Here's another, Acupuncturist from Los Altos who's also a professor, spoke of how Chinese medicine cures coronavirus patients oh. in China. And even the political columns were getting into the act. Yep, The Hill, that's a political website. They noted in one of their headlines, this was just yesterday, people are flocking to herbalists and alternative Eastern medicines to prevent COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So if this is your first time listening to the SGU, I'd like to briefly describe to you what TCM or traditional Chinese medicine is. And I'm going to use their own words. This comes directly from a very popular TCM website. Here it is. Traditional Chinese medicine does not classify diseases according to their viral strain. Rather, TCM classifies diseases according to the accompanying signs, symptoms, and surrounding pathology. TCM has its own treatment methodology. It involves balancing the various substances, functions, and factors that compose and govern the body, including fluids, blood, chi, temperature, digestive and respiratory functions. They do this using two main methods. Acupuncture, to stimulate points of the body that activate its regulatory mechanisms, such as breathing, urination, sweating, and defecation. And herbs, whose substances activate and contribute to the same regulatory mechanisms. That's it. That's in their words what TCM is. Needles and herbs. Yep. So do do people actually want this stuff? Do you think they want this in the mm-hmm. fight against COVID-19? Absolutely mm-hmm. they do. TCM is already estimated to be a $60 billion annual worldwide industry, and apparently they're going to have a banner year in 2020. In the face of the virus threat of our time, we have people reaching for anything suggested by anyone with even a modicum of authority. For example, at Callahouse Nutrition, which is a tiny shop in the heart of New York's Chinatown, they are selling out herbs like crazy. A supply that would normally last two to three weeks sells out in two to three days now. Acupuncturists in New York are also saying that since March 1st, their schedule books have skyrocketed. They, are, they, are, they have more people than they know what to do with running to the acupuncturist for help. They say it's like a light switch was flipped on and suddenly they are coming through the door. 
And I don't know that we should be surprised when we have reputed health organizations. We've talked about the World Health Organization. And guess what they did in 2019? Approved a new version of their international classification of diseases, which we talked about on the show, that the first of their kind to include TCM, giving TCM legitimacy. Evan, isn't this like extra ironic considering that there's some good reason to believe that traditional Chinese medicine was, if not the cause, at least an exacerbation of the zoonotic infection itself. You like, would, you would think that that would scare that just on the surface it would scare trade. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that importing. I mean, whether whether it's the pangolin or we now know it's not the snake or the chickens or the pigs or we know whatever the case may be, that we know that infection crosses over in these mm-hmm. situations, and then what we're going to cure it with more of the same. More of the same. And when you have, again, organizations such as WHO, or how about PubMed, what they said about COVID-19 and Chinese herbs. I mean, they're, they're lending legitimacy to this. Here's what, here's what you can read on PubMed. This is what they say. Based on historical records and human evidence of SARS and H1N1 influenza prevention, Chinese herbal formulas could be an alternative approach for the prevention <gasps> of COVID-19 in high-risk populations. No. Yes, that's pub, that's PubMed. They are making it's it nonsense. Worse. But that's but that's again, it's the problem of they're putting the the quacks in charge of those entries, right? They're like, mm-hmm. well, we don't know anything about acupuncture, so we'll get an acupuncturist to write the acupuncture recommendations, right? <laughs> yeah. For whatever, and then it's a lot of it is political correctness. Sure. It's you know under the guise of cultural sensitivity. And it's, yeah, so you end up with, we're in the middle of a pandemic and they're recommending magic potions that, and giving people this idea that it's going to, it's going to protect them at all. It's, and again, it's, not just magic potions, but magic potions, which at their origin are actually contributing absolutely. to crossover this, infections. This helps mm-hmm. spread the virus, <sighs> folks. I mean, you know, it's, look, they're giving this stuff attention. First of all, the media is giving this stuff attention that it doesn't deserve. People who do go for these routes, they'll be less inclined to seek remedies that will mm-hmm. that may actually work and, and, and follow protocols and procedures that will help them instead. They'll delay treatment, which, which is very bad. To places where, you know, there's no standard, right? There's no standard of care. So you might be going to a place where they're like sharing acupuncture needles or they're not sterilizing them all the way or, you know, whatever the case may be, they're developing these these TCM treatments and mm. they're not following a protocol and that in and of itself can spread disease. Yeah. And how about the, uh, the lack of quality control and the contamination yeah. of some of these uh, herbs that have industrial cl- chemicals or sometimes <laughs> they'll have actual prescription pharmaceuticals in them. They'll be mislabeled. You know, the quality control is so weak on this stuff. And let's not forget, you know, the interaction of people. Are they really going to go to their doctor and run all this stuff through them before they figure out how it's working with the other medications that the, that they're mm. that they're already on? There's a lot oh, of da- yeah. lot of danger here in doing this. So, yeah, and this again, you file all this under what's the harm, right? People, ah, what's yep. the harm? It's feel good stuff, whatever. It's placebo medicine. It's like, yeah, we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. This is friggin' harm. This mm-hmm. is that's why. Uh, so people who are going to, oh, I had my acupuncture, so I guess I'm okay to, you know, walk around with symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to contribute to contribute to the pandemic. There's no question. Sure. And desperate people will reach for for almost anything that they think may have some kind of benefit, some kind of beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. If they're told, if that's what they're told by by anyone reputable or not. 
It's also for China, it's cultural hegemony. It's a deliberate campaign of spreading their culture. And again, just remember, TCM is fake. It's fake. They made it up a hundred years ago. They just mishmashed together a bunch of historical stuff that it wasn't actually real. But you, you know? can imagine that like you're in Wuhan, you get a cough, you don't know what to do. You're starting to hear all these little, you know, rumors of something going around and you go to your TCM practitioner because that's what you do when mm-hmm. you live in Wuhan. Or even you go to the the physician's office, there's no test for this thing yet, and you're you're being told Maybe here, let me put you on a nebulizer and give you oxygen, but also take this, you know, traditional treatment. I mean, it's, it's it was probably mass chaos early on. And it mm-hmm. just, it breaks my heart to think of the fact that like, not only are people here in the West who, for whom it, there is no cultural component um, adopting this stuff, but in some of these areas where people might've been able to get well sooner, that cultural component of it probably did delay treatment for a lot of people, which mm-hmm. is really sad. So it's terrible to read these headlines are, are coming out, and it's also having an impact on people, not just in those areas of the world, but right here at our, in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, KiwiCo. Guys, KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages and helps them learn about science. They're mm-hmm. defining the future of play. How could I say that, Steve? You want to know why? Because these projects that you could do with your kids, they're engaging, they're enriching, and the kids are going to love them. Each crate is designed by experts and tested by kids and teaches a new STEM concept. Their mission is to help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and have a blast while they're doing it. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus easy-to-follow instructions and more enriching content. Guys, I have to tell you that I got two Kiwi crates that are for the older kids, 13+. plus. Um, I'm in that bracket, I think. And I brought them to the group homes where Ooh. I see kids for therapy. And we did a group therapy project in the two different houses. In one house, we built trash get ball (laughs) and in the other house (laughs) we built a pair of stereo headphones and it was so fun and so you know just like heartwarming to see the kids working together on these projects that are like you know kind of complicated like we're learning about electricity and wiring and doing some cool kinetic stuff and you know they were reading the instructions together working really collaboratively and at the end they had this tangible really cool object and all the other kids in the house were like giving them props it was such a neat thing to do together so get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com slash skeptics that's k-i-w-i-c-o dot com slash skeptics all right guys let's get back to the show all right jay two weeks ago you basically set up the question how do planes fly exactly and this week you're going to give us the answer All right, guys, we had part one of this crazy question of what creates lift and how in the hell do we not know what creates lift? Well, this goes to show you just how complicated the physical world is. So we left it where we had two competing explanations of how lift occurs. We have the uh, Bernoulli's theorem, which states that air passes across a curved surface um, and this increases the velocity due to the curve and will create an area of lower pressure. And we also have Newton's third law of motion, 
which, as you likely know, states that for every action, there is an equal equal and opposite reaction. And in the case of an airplane, the airfoil or wing is pushing air down towards the ground, which would then push the airplane up. But neither of these explanations actually answer why there is lower pressure found on the curved part of an airfoil or a wing. So the rest of this news item, I'd like everyone that can hear my voice to get into crash position so I can get into the details. <laughs> Hang on. I'm looking for the card in front of my seat. Um, <laughs> there it is. Okay. Ready. The first part of this puzzle is explaining why air moves faster over a curved part of an airfoil. Um, and many people try to explain how Bernoulli's theorem does answer this, but there, it doesn't. And, and I'll get into the details. There's something called the equal transit time theory. This is one way people are explaining the phenomenon of the air moving faster over the curved airfoil. The idea behind the theory is that if two air molecules that were next to each other separate at the leading edge of a wing, you know, as the air is coming towards the wing, one one air molecule goes up over the wing and another air molecule goes on the, the bottom flat side of the wing, they're saying that they will meet each other simultaneously once they pass over the wing. Because the air molecule that went across the curved part of the wing had to travel a further distance than the air molecule that went on the non-curved part of the wing. In order for the two of them to meet up, the one that went on the top curved longer part of the wing had to travel faster. And because it's traveling faster, therefore, uh, lift. Uh, can anybody guess what's wrong with the logic in this theory? There's no such thing as an as an equal time of passage principle. Right. There's no reason why the, the air molecule that goes on top of the wing has to move faster in order to meet its friend partner air molecule that went below the wing. Like, right. There's nothing yeah, connecting Yeah, they're not quantumly them. engaged or entangled yeah. or anything. That's correct. We Right there, we can look at that and go, well, you know, even, even regular people who don't have degrees in this can see that there's a problem with it. Now, in fact, the air that's going over the curved part of the wing moves much faster than the equal transit time theory could account for. How about that? That's a fact. And isn't that interesting? It's not. It's not matching its friend on the backside of the wing, it's actually moving faster and getting there first. Mm -hmm. So another flaw in Bernoulli's theorem is that lift still occurs even if the curved part of a wing is on the bottom half, which would be the case where an airplane is flying upside down, right? If a vacuum was being created on the curved part of the wing, when a plane flew upside down, it would be pulled towards the ground by the vacuum. But planes don't get pulled towards the ground by the vacuum when a plane is flying upside down. You can also have wings that have the exact curvature on the top and bottom parts. You could even have a wing whose surfaces are both completely flat. Both of these wing shapes allow the plane to fly upside down, and the only requirement is that the wing has has to meet the oncoming air at the appropriate angle of attack, which basically means that when the air hits it, the wing will in, the wing will push air down. So we could be certain that Bernoulli's theorem by itself is not the complete picture of what causes lift. Now, moving on to Newton's third law of motion. On its surface, it seems like Newton's third law of motion can explain lift more easily. And, you know, on the surface, it absolutely does. Since the air has mass and the airfoil is pushing the mass of air downward, the plane would naturally have to move in the opposite direction of that downward pressure. The shape of a wing doesn't matter as long as air is being pushed downward right? Pretty simple, straightforward to understand. But this explanation of lift also can't explain the lower pressure that occurs on top of the wing. Now, to be fair to both Bernoulli and Newton, neither of them were trying to explain lift. It just so happens that their laws and theories could be used to help explain this particular phenomenon. The fact is that both of them lived way before mechanical flight. So another interesting side note is that Einstein, how is that, 
tried to tackle this problem and even came up with a wing design of his own. His mm. wing design did what, guys? Does anybody know? It completely failed. He oh. tried to design a wing and he That's couldn't do it. That's why no one it. knows about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I never heard of it before. Ev. I'm reading. Right. I'm like, I, he looked into this. I mean, this was this is the smart personified. He couldn't figure it out. Well, yeah, I'm um, not surprised he looked into it. But you know, we're not. Nobody's talking about Einstein's wing. And he just moved on. He said, "Screw it. I can't. I can't work with this stuff." Sure, so, anyway, so, <laughs> I'll deal so with modern, simpler stuff like black holes. <laughs> exactly. Well, he just had an aptitude for that. But anyway, so modern researchers. Today, they study a field of science called computational fluid dynamics. So the result of this collection of research is very accurate pressure distribution predictions, predictable airflow patterns, and quantitative results that are the foundation for what? The incredibly, awesomely awesome, sophisticated aircraft designs that we have today, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, the planes look the way that they do because they've come up with these uh, formulas that predict the way that the airplane is going to behave and they, the design is following um, the need, right? You know, it's not the other way around. Planes are not designed to look cool. They, they happen to look cool. They're designed to function. However, these simulations still do not explain the physics behind lift. We just know that lift occurs and then we plan for it. So a leading aerodynamics expert named Doug McLean has been studying lift for a very, very long time. And in 2012, he published a book called Understanding Aerodynamics, Arguing from the Real Physics. So McLean writes in his book that the air that surrounds a wing acts as a continuous material that deforms to follow the contour of the airfoil. The deformed air that is above and below the wing affects the pressure over a wide area of airfoil, and that's called a pressure field. When lift is produced, a diffuse cloud of low pressure always forms above the airfoil and a diffuse cloud of high pressure usually forms below. Where these clouds touch the airfoil, they constitute the pressure difference that exerts lift on the airfoil. Right? Not the easiest thing to understand. But let's dig into this a little bit. And and this is going to be the final act of, of me explaining this to you. So getting down to... To as close to the answer as we can, McLean describes four components that explain lift, and, I'll, and which is part of what I just read to you. So the first one is a wing redirects air downward. We got that. The airfoil has to have an angle of attack where air is coming across the wing and, and the air that leaves the wing is going down, is being pushed down. Number two, the air that's passing on, top, on the top part of the wing is sped up as described in Bernoulli's principle. And three and four, there is an area of high pressure below the wing and a region of low pressure above the wing. So these four components together, and I'm quoting him, support each other in a reciprocal cause and effect relationship, and none would exist without the others. The pressure differences exert the lift force on the airfoil, while the downward turning of the flow and the changes in flow speed sustain the pressure differences. He explains that there is a reciprocal relationship between these four components. And the, they collectively come into existence because they all create each other. He describes it as a circular cause and effect. And the, obvi the obvious question here is, how is this possible? How could each of these effects sustain and reinforce all the other effects? The answer is Newton's second law of motion. Newton's second law states, uh, the acceleration of a body or a parcel of fluid is proportional to the force exerted on it. And McLean wrote, Newton's second law tells us that when a pressure difference imposes a net force on a fluid parcel, it must cause a change in the speed or direction or both of the parcel's motion. The origin of lift, then, can also be described as a non-uniform pressure field that comes from the downward force that's exerted 
on the air by the wing. The fact is that the behavior of fluid flows are incredibly complex, and this is why a lot of this might not even make any sense to you as you're hearing me say it, and I'm, and I'm trying to make it as understandable as possible. So once again, why does the air that passes over the wing follow the shape of the wing? This is part of this is part of the real conundrum that people that study this are having is when they're trying to figure out what lift why lift occurs. You know, they ask this question, why why are the air molecules following the shape of the wing? You would think that the air would just go over the highest part of the wing and then go straight back, right? Cuz the jet mm-hmm. is moving really fast and the air goes up gets pushed up by that by that round shape in the front of a wing. And then you'd think, yeah, it just should just go straight back. But it doesn't. It follows the, that downward teardrop curve of the wing. And people are trying to figure out why that's happening. And they know that that's where the answer is. But the, the, the molecules, the air molecules don't go straight back. They follow the curve of the wing. So many other scientists offer explanations of why this occurs. And Mark Drella, uh, who is a professor of fluid dynamics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, explains that air molecules go along the shape of the wing because a slight partial vacuum forces them in place. As those air molecules are pulled away from the air molecules that freely flow above the wing, an area of lower pressure is created above the wing. And that sounds totally legitimate. How How much can we test that? Can we see it in the laboratory? And you know what? Other experts flat out disagree with him. Hmm. And the question goes on. We still don't know. What? But yes, we still don't exactly know. So wait, why do they disagree? They're like, that can't be right, but I don't know what is. Right. Well, okay. So they're agreeing that the vacuums, the the high pressure and low pressure points exist. They agree on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And they seem to be circling around the low pressure point, which is on the top curved part of the wing. That's That's where the whole magic is happening here. Okay. So there's they can't figure out using modern physics why the the vacuum is there. They're really twe- they're tweezing out the you know the the seams here. They're they're like they're pulling at mm-hmm. at every little thing that they can think of that would, would that would make the vacuum. Why are the air molecules behaving the way that they are? You know how much vacuum is there? There's I mean you know the mathematical equations behind this are are very complicated, and they still don't have a, a, an answer that. You know that follows the laws of physics that really explain why it's occurring. I think the really cool thing, which I, I bet most people learned with, you know, with this news item that I, I stated, was that the, the four effects of of what happened all together collectively create each other and collect and collectively create lift. Mm-hmm. They all are part of the lift equation. But man, they just can't get there. They're not there yet. And a lot of people are working on it, and they talk to each other, and they're reading each other's literature. And by God, they want it; they want the answer. And I bet you, you know, they all want to figure it out. But I bet you, they just want to know the damn answer as well. And this is a wonderful example of science, you know, on the move and working correctly because you know they are reading each other's research, and they're just like, hey, you know, that sounds good. I agree with all these other parts, but this one part, and it's always the part that creates the, the lift. I don't com- fully agree, but fascinating, man. We don't know what what. We don't know why the why an airplane flies. You know, we, we we could get close, but we don't fully understand it. Yeah, that that's interesting in and of itself that we still don't really really know all the forces involved. But just because it's horrifically complicated, I wonder if we're going to have to like model it in a supercomputer. To AI. Really I know. was thinking the same thing. Yeah, let let yeah. the let the real smart machines figure this one out for <laughs> right. us. I mean, <laughs> so any listeners that could answer this question, this one has been gnawing at me for the last two weeks since I've been reading and studying about this. So when you have an airfoil or a wing, 
right? The bottom is flat. The top part is that, that teardrop shape. And you have this low pressure on the top part of the wing and a higher pressure on the bottom part of the wing. And the plane flies upside down. Do those high pressure and low pressure zones flip? Is it Does the orientation of the plane have anything to do with where yeah. the high pressure and low pressure is or not? Because like I said last week, if a plane flies upside down, it still can produce lift. Jay, if you, if you fly your plane upside down, you have crack up. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> Think about it. Crack <laughs> up. Butt crack. Oh. But, uh, um, <laughs> Kara, some things are better left not understanding. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I, I, please, if anybody out there like really understands this. Oh, boy. Uh, I yeah, think I'm, that I'm here what, I, what, I, what I would guess is, is that when you're flying the plane upside down, if you have different wing shapes, there's just a different set of forces that are creating lift. It's not the exact same four in the same proportion. Right. You know, you, so you could still get right, cause you might, and you might have to change your angle of attack a little bit when you're flying upside down, right? To get to get more lift from other sources because you're not getting it from the the low pressure of the teardrop shape. So compensate in other ways, right? Yeah, but so definitely like this is one of those things where you, like you have a little question mark next to, and you keep on the back burner. So if anything gets published that really advances our understanding of lift. It'd be interesting to talk about it now that we have this sort of background. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. All right, guys. Last week, I played this noisy. I like it. Uh, I think it was a listener yeah. commenting on our 2035 episode. <laughs> <laughs> expressing either outrage or excitement. like a bird or a monkey or a monkey bird. A monkey bird. A monkey bird. You know. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> One of the monkey birds. Okay, a monkey bird. There should be monkey birds. I know. They're called birds. Or bunkies. Monkeys. <laughs> monkey man. All right, so I had uh, – this was fun because I got a lot of – Really, uh, a lot of interesting responses. A lot of people were guessing the same collection of things. So a, a listener named Aaron Tullock wrote in, Hi, Jay. Love what you guys do. I've listened to all 765 episodes and never had a clue what the noisy might be. Until mm -hmm. today, mm -hmm. this week's noisy sounds to me like the, the cry of an injury. And injury. That's I-N-D-R-I, -I, the largest of the lemurs. Keep fighting the good fight. Cheers. And then he writes, P.S. I liked the name Jay so much, I used it for my son. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that that blew my mind, utterly blew my mind. I I, I feel like we there's a skeptic out there, a, a little baby skeptic. A baby waiting. skeptic. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So, God, Aaron, thank you so much. I, I, I am really honored. So check this out. This listener emailed me and said her name is... Lee Morenko Galina, very cool name. And she said, uh, this guest is on behalf of my two guinea piglets, Rick and Morty. Once they heard this noise <laughs> through the speaker, they perked up and purred at the beginning of the Aww. recording, rapidly escalating to squeaks and squeals at the end. <laughs> Therefore, this may be a cunning, nerdy pun in guinea pig speak. <laughs> I, <love that. laughs> I don't care if it's wrong. I love the answer. Cute. And then... Virtually, yeah. the very next email I got, 
from Kevin Malfa. He said, this week's noisy is a guinea pig. What? So I'm telling you that it is not a guinea pig, but there is a guinea pig connection because I got about seven or eight more emails where people were saying guinea pig. And this is, this is most yeah. definitely not a guinea pig. So Andy Schneckel wrote in and said, hey, Jay, this week's noisy is the territorial call of some white-cheeked gibbons. And he's correct. He's the white territorial. So there were yes. monkeys. Yes. Lower so apes. Check this out. Actually. Lesser oh, apes. Check it out. Lesser apes, yeah. Less. Lesser apes, yeah. I love that second one in the beginning. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> So to continue on, uh, this is what, more of what Andy wrote. In junior high school, I volunteered at the Columbus Zoo, and one of my favorite parts was getting into the zoo an hour early and hearing the gibbons pairs sing at each other. The sound carried hundreds of yards across the zoo. And and you're right, Andy. This was absolutely two gibbons, two white-cheeked gibbons, and what was called a love duet. Aww. They are critically endangered species. And it, you know Kenny, who wrote in, was saying that it's sad to think that the plaintive whale is at risk of never being heard again. There's a lot of cool stuff, though. A, a listener named Justice Smith wrote in and just gave me a, a really cool download on on these birds. So this is Monkeys. what Justice wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gibbons. I mean the gib. I mean the gibbons. I'm sorry. Yeah, the monkeys or the lesser apes. They're not birds. <laughs> I know. I, I, you, you, you did that to me. I know. That's right. I'm sorry. You, confla- you con- confabulated. Con- con- oh, my God. In my head, I'm like, she's wrong. These are birds. And I'm like, wait a second. These are monkeys. Oh, my God. You just primed me. You primed me. I know. Me. I'm sorry. All right. So Justice writes in, this week's very cool noisy has the distinctive who sound of a gibbon call. So he guessed it correctly. And then check this out. He hits me with the knowledge. And while there are 16 or 17 different species of gibbon, I'm going to hazard a guess that this comes from the lar gibbon, also known as the white-handed gibbon. Scientists studying gibbons' vocalizations have found that they can make up to 450 different sounds in the response to different events. For instance, they can make a different sound when they spot an eagle versus when they spot a leopard. Given how varied their vocalizations are, I'm not surprised. This has... Interesting implications for how and when speech may have evolved in our own ancestors. Cool. So cool. cool. So they have words. I mean, a vocalization that is tied to a thing is a word. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And, oh, God, I just love the fact that they have a love duet, a love song for each other, you know? Amazing. Yeah, gibbons are, they're lesser apes. They are, you know, they are very advanced. And, of course, none of that is surprising because, you know, we didn't evolve speech out of nowhere you know anything that we mm-hmm. have that we think is uniquely human has antecedents in our closest ancestors you know yeah all right so i got a new noisy this week it was sent in by a listener named dave graham and here it is That's a bird. That's got to be a bird. Last week was monkey. This one cracks me up. It might be a child. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Jay when he doesn't get enough meatballs. (laughs) Bob, you are somewhat on the right track with that guess. Oh, no way. (laughs) 
and wait until you find out what the hell this one is Whoa. because it, once you find out the circumstance, you're going to love it. So if you think you know what this week's noisy is or you want to say hi or you want to um, complain to me specifically about Steve, email me at WTN <laughs> at theskepticsguide.org. All right. So, Jay, we've been talking about the effects of the coronavirus and uh, there's the advice to cancel any large gatherings for the next couple of months. And unfortunately, our Denver show on April 23rd and 24th is right in the middle of that. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah. So we talked to our tour manager, the company that manages all of the, all the dates and they suggested, and the venue is also, you know, leaning towards us agreeing to move the date. And I think it's the best thing to do. So if you did buy tickets for either of the shows in Denver, April 23rd is the extravaganza and April 24th is the private show. Uh, here's what you, you got to do. If you bought tickets for the extravaganza, the, probably the best thing for you to do is just request a refund. Um, it's very likely that the venue will e email everyone and just say, hey, we're going to cancel this date. We're already negotiating for new dates. It's probably going to happen in either later October or November. And of course, when we re renegotiate that date, we will be rescheduling that particular private show that, that some of you have signed up for. So if you are a part of the private show group, you could do one of two things. You can request a refund and I'll happily refund you, or you can wait until we have the date. If you can keep the date, then great. Then keep your ticket. I'll, I'll change the dates on the event and we're all good to go. Either way, we think it's the best thing to do. It would be really bad if we waited longer and things get worse than they are right now, which everybody is saying that they're going to get a lot worse over the next four to six weeks. It's very unpredictable what things are going to be like, you know, end of April. And I don't want people, I don't want to have the show and people saying, hey, I want a refund anyway, because I would give them, I would give anybody a refund and like 10 people show up. It's just not, it's not good business. It's not good, you know, because we do want to come to Denver and we want to do the full treatment and, and have as many people come see us as possible. Yeah. Bottom line though, it's not good public health practice at this point in time. We pretty much have to do this Yeah, uh, to be responsible. Uh, so, but we'll reschedule for the fall, but you know, basically all event, event dates for the year, I think are tentative at this point. Yep. Uh, we'll be following the, the standard recommendations, you know, as they evolve, but it's pretty clear over the next two months, it's a bad idea to have any large gatherings. Everything after that is tentative, but we'll, we're going to try to reschedule and work as many things in as we can. Speaking of which. Yes. There's we have good news. Yeah, we have some, some good news, everyone. So uh, we've been planning Nexus for 2020. And when the coronavirus thing hit, this kind of, we, we said uh, we, were, we were getting close to booking a final uh, date and venue. But then we sort of put things on hold to see what was going to happen. And it's pretty clear now that it would, it would not be a good idea to plan a large conference you know, even over the summer, who knows where things are going to be at that point. And that's a lot harder to delay or cancel. You know, we, this is pretty much the time where we, we need to decide, you know, if we're going to be having an event in, in uh, July or August. So what we decided to do is something very cool. We're going to have an all digital Nexus for 2020. Yeah. And this is going to be announced formally on Tuesday. Uh, if you go to nexus, N-E-C-S-S dot org, you'll see a countdown clock. But we decided that we should put it in the show because so many people have been emailing us and asking. 
we're excited. We, we think this could be really cool because we're going to be able to pull people from places that we couldn't normally afford to fly them in from. You know, like if we wanted to talk to people that are in Europe or have people speak at the conference that are in Australia, you know, those are 1000 to $1,600 tickets just to fly people over here. So what we decided to do was it's going to be an all-digital conference, meaning we, we will have an MC. We absolutely will have an all-day event. It's going to be on Saturday, August 1st. So, so that's this is your save the date announcement. So Saturday, August 1st will be an all day, all digital Nexus. We'll probably have some kind of a more social fun event on Friday night, July 31st. Uh, so you might want to put that aside as well. But we've been brainstorming all week about exactly what this conference is going to be. And we're excited about it. It's going to be cool. But uh, we haven't nailed down the details yet, like a schedule or even the price uh, but it's obviously going to be a lot, lot less than a meat space conference. <laughs> uh, but it'll, you know, it's going to be a, a, a full day, day and a half of content. And we're going to try to make it as good as possible. So this is a first thing, first time we've done, you know, digital streaming events before, but this is the first time we're going to try to do a streaming conference. So if you have any ideas, maybe you've experienced things before that you, that you thought were good. Let us know. We're kind of still in the brainstorming phase of putting this whole thing together. Already we have a ton of, I think, really fun ideas. Uh, but because, you know, it's all digital, that opens, it opens things up a lot, yeah. as, as Jay was saying. So we, we want to make sure we're taking full advantage of the digital aspect of this conference. Now, the second shoe to fall here, which is in, an, in a good way, is that we have formally decided that in 2021 that we will be having Nexus at Atlantic City. And I'm so excited because I, I put in a ton of research in on this. I've been talking to all the hotels that are down there. I've narrowed it down to two hotels that I'm going to go visit in person very soon. Uh, so do us a favor. We will keep you updated. Check out our Nexus Facebook page and nexus.org, N-E-C-S-S.org for more information coming very, very soon. We'll have all the details nailed down on Tuesday. All right, cool. All right, thank you, Jay. Uh, we're going to now move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. You guys want to hear the theme this week? Yeah, sure. These are all news items, but there is a theme to them, and the theme is astronomy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shit. Bob's like, got it. <laughs> I'm all good with that astronomy <laughs> shit. All right, all right. Here we go. Three astronomy-based news items. Here we go. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered a new type of pulsar that only pulsates on one side. Item number two. The red giant, Betelgeuse, continues an unprecedented dimming, which recent observations suggest is due to a decrease in intrinsic brightness. And item number three. Using the ESO telescope, astronomers have detected an exoplanet where it rains iron. All right, Jay, go first. Okay, I I uh, decided that Bob should go last because he probably knows the most, and I'll go first because I I probably 
You decided that, huh? I don't know. I probably know the least. Okay, the first one here. Astronomers have discovered a new type of pulsar that only pulsates on one side. Yeah, it pulsates on one side. Now, I you know, I understand what a pulsar is. I understand how it functions. I don't understand the only pulsates on one side business here. I don't are we only able to it's only shooting light out as it spins on one side? Like I don't get it. Hmm. Okay. Not sure about that. The red giant Beetlejuice, which we saw, by the way, remember Steve? Mm-hmm. It continues and unprecedented. Yeah, Beetlejuice can be seen from the northern hemisphere. We see it all every day. Orion. I, I, right. Then I, were, I was correct in saying that we saw it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one of the ones that can be seen in both hemispheres. So Beetlejuice continues an unprecedented dimming, which recent observations suggest is due to a decrease in intrinsic brightness. Now this, when I when I first heard Steve read this, my response was no shit, right? Uh, suggest there is a a unprecedented dimming, which is a reduction or a decrease in intrinsic brightness. <laughs> Isn't that like saying like I turned the volume down, so therefore it's lower? I, I don't see what the what the, the there's something going on in inside of this sentence that I don't get because I'm not really up on on astronomy. Um, I'm I'm going to just say that that is. Not ready to be answered. The third one, I am sure <laughs> that there is a planet that rains iron. <laughs> I'm, I'm channeling Perry with this one. I'm sure of it. There has to be a planet out there that rains iron. There's too many planets, and I, I would say sure. That one, to me, doesn't sound that crazy. So if, if between these, the, the first one and the second one, I actually would think that the first one about the pulsars is the fake. Okay. Evan? Oh, boy. Uh, I don't like right any of tried, these. Man. This is hard. Nothing to say. This is hard. Pulsars, they rotate. How could it only be one side? That doesn't make any sense. Something would have to be blocking it, but that, I don't know. How could that possibly, possibly be? Jeez, this is why I think this one might be science. <laughs> because it's so outlandish that it probably is. Um, and then Beetlejuice. Okay, so... The recent observations suggest it, uh, the dimming is due to a decrease in intrinsic brightness as opposed to question mark. That's the point. I don't know enough about this. I don't have another option. I don't have that fill in the blank, which would allow me to figure this one out. And then the telescope, I, I, I'm on the same wavelength with Jay here. Uh, I think, didn't we talk about a planet that they determined was raining diamonds or something? At some point, uh, they discovered, so why not iron? Um, sure, I don't see any problem with that particular one. Um, that we detected it is very cool. So, is it Beetlejuice, or is it the Pulsar? Gosh, I, I'm so tempted to think it's the Pulsar, because it's the less plausible of the two, but that's why I think that this might be a gotcha one. Nope, I'm going to go with Jay. Jay, you're, you led me to the Pulsar. I'm, I'm with you, is. I'm with you. We're going we're gonna rise together, together or fail together. Together then. All right, Kara. Okay, so a new type of pulsar that only pulsates on one side. Yes, it doesn't make sense because pulsars spin, but maybe it makes sense if like it's wobbly. I don't know, right? If something spins weird, then wouldn't you get like a beacon that's like irregular or only from one side? I don't know. Not sure why that would be the case, but I feel like that could be the case. Beetlejuice we've been talking about. We just talked about this weeks ago, right? Is it going to Nova? Is it going to Supernova? Or is it going to Supernova? Like, why is it dimming? Is it going to get dim before it gets darker? But I think that it's dimming, not because it's actually dimming, but because something else is making it look like it's dimming. Mm -hmm. So 
for me, that's the one that's sticking out. And then finally, uh, an exoplanet where it rains iron. The first thing I thought of, Jay, was, wasn't there a planet <laughs> right. that rains diamonds? Well, I'm right that, there with you. I remember, the di- <laughs> I remember the diamond one, yeah. Oh, Evan, you but said I that first. But I thought that too. And um, I think that that one seems totally plausible. Like iron is one of those kind of core elements or core, um, uh, yeah, elements. So I don't know. It seems plausible. So I'm going to actually depart from my gentleman colleagues. And I'm going to say that Beetlejuice is dimming, but it's not because uh, it's not like directly linked to any inherent uh, dimming. It's because something is making it look like it's dimming, but I don't know what. And Bob. An exoplanet where it rains iron, sure. I mean, nothing really would surprise me. Very little would surprise me what could rain down on an exoplanet. I mean, that sounds extreme for sure. But if it was raining cheese? Yeah, that's why I amended my comment to be almost anything. (laughs) Um, uh, Raining Pop-Tarts. The Beetlejuice, haven't read anything on Beetlejuice. (laughs) That would be awesome. Haven't read anything about Beetlejuice, so that doesn't surprise me. The the only one that kind of smacks me in the face is is the Pulsar. I mean, how would you even know? That um, it's only pulsating on one ah. side. I mean, because you know you've got the you know you've got the uh, magnetic ro- axis ah. rotation, and you got or you got the mo- magnetic axis, you got the rotation axis. So it's rotating on one axis, and the and it's the you know the and the uh, the pulses of, of radiation are coming out of the two two magnetic poles. And as, so as it swings around, you know you, one pole is going back to the Earth, back to the Earth, back to the Earth. But the other one is depending on how you know, how it's arranged, the, the other poles are really not even going near the Earth. So how do you even know it's not radiating? Um, it, but this this stuff as well, uh, there's so much crazy stuff out there. Uh, I just don't know how you would confirm it. Um, and you, it says discovered, so I'm not sure oh, shit. how – I'm not sure how that would work. Um, so I'm going to have to say that one. Ooh. <laughs> Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, don't, so, don't get your hopes up too high on that one. I I don't know. I'm winging it. I totally wing that one. This just doesn't make sense. I am all alone on an astronomy <laughs> item, yeah. Bob. This Chances are close to zero. Well. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way. But hey, you, you, exactly. you kick ass, so uh, who knows? I almost I went, be I almost I'll, you, that way. Almost. I'll tell you that. I wouldn't be surprised. Because yeah, that, that one, that would be my second choice for sure. All right, so let's start with the one that you guys all agree with. Using the ESO telescope, astronomers have detected an exoplanet where it rains iron. You guys all think this is science, and this one is science. Hey! Yeah, this one's cool. Iron Man. What the hell? Iron Man, huh? So what do you think? (laughs) How how is this working? What do you think? Well, um, it's hot as hell. No idea. I mean, I, I don't know if, if iron can ever become gaseous in any way, but there's, there's, or there's something collecting in the <laughs> atmosphere. There, iron there, there's in something the in the atmosphere that's collecting, uh, that's, the iron is probably forming in the atmosphere. Yeah. How's that happening? Yeah. Let's say, yeah that's the, it could be, wait, wait, I got it. I got it. The ocean, the ocean is shooting up pressure? geysers. Iron. Oh, I see. So it's one of those exoplanets that's, that's very, that's, that's very bad, close. Jay. It's very close to, its parent star. Okay. And so it's super, super hot on the hot side. Wait, so you're saying that's so, living in its parent star's basement and it's in its 30s and doesn't have yeah, a job. That's exactly what I'm saying. Mm. So it's <laughs> so hot. How hot is it that it <laughs> vaporizes metals like iron? Wow. Right? Yeah, that's hot. And so on the, sun, on the sun side, okay. the atmosphere uh. is full of vaporized metal. And then, of course, the, the air is circulating to some extent. And when the air gets over to the cool Cools, side, yep. 
It's still like 1,300 degrees Celsius over there, but it's cool enough that the iron precipitates out nice. as rain. So, so this is a planet that is probably tidally locked if it's, yes. if it's that close. And yes. so there's an atmosphere. That, so they've actually detected an atmosphere yes. on a tidally locked exoplanet. That in and of itself is they've, yeah, they've spectrographically detected the iron, and they know from the temperature differences that it would precipitate out on the, on the dark side. That's encouraging that the atmosphere wasn't stripped away. Yeah, but it's like, you know, it's it's super hot and it's got, you know, vaporized metal, you know, in the and it's, you know, raining down because it's relatively cooler, but it still would melt yeah. you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, very inhospitable. What does vaporized iron look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Are they droplets? Well, they become droplets on the other side, right? That's when they sure. rain, they're droplets. Yeah. But are they like do they reharden and then you're just like Pel- pummeled by little yeah. pellets? Iron hail. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, not not a uh, a pleasant place for sure. Let's go to item number one. Astronomers have discovered a new type of pulsar that only pulsates on one side. The guys, the moiety of guys on the show. <laughs> uh, I see what you did. There. Think, yeah, thank you. Think that this one is the fiction. Kara thinks this one is science, <sighs> and this one is. Science. Oh, damn it. I, good wow. job, Kara. Good, knew good it job, Kara. Thing in the oh, flick. my God. This is making up for the time when I lost the mental health one. Almost. Yeah. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Remember. What the um, hell? Explain this. There is a, it's a, Insufficient. <laughs> it's a pulsar that has a companion yeah. star that's so close. How close is it? It's so How close. close is it? That it gets it's it's distorted into a teardrop shape, and as it rotates around, only that extended side pulsates, and we can tell that because we can see sort of some features, you know, surface features of the star, and so we could say, oh, it's only pulsating when the when the same side of the star is pointing towards us, and not when the other side is pointing to us. It's only pulsating on that one side, and it, it has this very very close companion star. It's really close. That's that's the issue. What the hell? So the companion star is preventing the How? other side from. Well, pulsing. I think it's only pul- it's pulsating well, it's because of that. Shape? Yeah. It's pulsating because of that companion star. Oh, pulsating because. But of is it the weird? Yeah, it's the weird shape. shape. That's that's weird. Weird. I want to see. I want okay. to see a graphic a of this. And if they could, if but it's not if they wobbly. could see surface features, how close is that damn pulsar? So what's interesting is that this star, this situation was predicted 40 years ago. The astronomer who predicted has been looking for it for 40 years, and he finally found it. Boy, that sounds like a lonely 40 years, man. I know. He's he's getting drunk now. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't (laughs) the only thing he was doing, but I think this has been on the the back burner for that long. A pulsar is like as big as a city, and we're seeing surface features? I call bullshit. It's not. I didn't say it's. It, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's that small. It's a pulsating it, star. Oh it's wait, that it's not star. a. Then it's not a goddamn pulsar. Yeah, then it's not a pulsar. A pulsar implies neutron star. It's a type of neutron star. So if it's not a neutron star, it's not a pulsar. Oh, I should have uh, said pulsating star, not pulsar. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll have to give you guys a gimme on this one. Oh yeah. 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 Wait, 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 wait. What do we do? Shit. No, but do I? Huh? What do, you mean, what do we do? Are, are, do I yeah. still get the joy of having yeah, won? Yeah, you won, though? but we I can't. all win. It's okay if they get the same amount. You mean we don't okay. get a minus, but Kara no, gets but, a plus? No, but I win better. No, it's okay if everybody gets a plus. I just want you guys to talk I, about yeah, how everyone, everyone, everyone gets a win. Everyone I, gets a win. I think it matters. 
think Kara. I just want I just want the words of like me winning. I don't. Yeah, I'm reading the article to see if they ever use the term pulsar. They use pulsating star every time. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. All right. I screwed up. I should have said pulsating star. Yeah. Well, how do you yeah, want to handle so, it, Steve? It's a, I, as I said three yeah. times already. Now it's a win for everybody because <laughs> it's technically <laughs> fiction. As stated, it's fiction. Okay. So let's go on to number two. The red giant Betelgeuse continues an unprecedented dimming, which recent observations suggest is due to a decrease in intrinsic brightness. This is also fiction because the, uh, the, re- the recent observations show that it's due to dust. It's not, so it's not intrinsic, it's extrinsic, right? It's not the star itself. Yay. It's dust ah. in front of the star. Wow, Kara, you sniffed you sniff that one out really well. I didn't really read it, but I did see like all of these in headlines. So it's one of those hard things where you're like, he usually changes yeah, you so can't much rely on that the headline. headline makes you think yeah. you know what you that's, know. That's what I want to kill, Steve. Yeah. yeah How exactly. do you want to handle this? That there was, <laughs> I want to handle this by having Evan read the quote for the week. Keep asking, Jay. You'll find out. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> the key phrase there to you. Evan, you could read us the quote whenever you want All right (laughs) Uh, A few different listeners suggested that I pull this quote and offer it So I did Here we go It's not important what famous people say We have to speak about things in the right manner Not people with no knowledge, like me Talking about something like politics or coronavirus My opinion really is not important. And that was spoken by Liverpool Football Club manager Jurgen Klopp, who's very famous, uh, very highly respected, apparently one of the best soccer coaches or football coaches on the planet. And they asked and the reporters asked him his opinion about coronavirus. And he and he and he gave and he told the reporter, "Look, I'm I'm not the one you should be asking about this. Ask the experts. Good for you know, him. Don't, don't and don't talk to famous people or celebrities or to to get these kinds of opinions because it doesn't matter ultimately." Mm-hmm. And he was he's spot on. What a cool thing for this guy to say that. Yeah, <clears throat> I read um, an article about it, and I, I his response was really good because he was shaming the reporter yeah like you know like are you kidding what me you're, a stupid question yeah you're asking me about coronavirus like i'm a i'm a football coach like what the hell do i know from coronavirus you know yeah yeah but it's important to remember and glad that he reinforced it so we need we need more of that from celebrities and other people uh in that in that particular class of people to to to, to be straight up about that kind of stuff Everyone's got an opinion on all sorts of things these days, if you're asked. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hey, it's better if you just stick to your particular field of uh, expertise, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah, or report on what the experts are saying, right? If you're a science communicator, your job is to accurately reflect the consensus of expert opinion. Correct. Right. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me this week. It was a fun show. Sure, Thanks, man. Steve. It was Thanks, a lot Steve. of fun. Jay was thoroughly entertained. Mm-hmm. Jay's very good <laughs> at entertaining himself. And until next week. This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. Thank you.